Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We are delighted to bring you another Journal Club episode, this time with Dr. Nathan Ginther. Dr. Ginther is a colorectal surgeon at the University of Saskatchewan. And today he discusses his paper that was published in the Canadian Journal of Surgery entitled A Comparison of Perineal Staple Prolapse Resection and the Altmaier Procedure at Two Canadian Academic Hospitals, with the first author being Haven Roy. And this was published in January of 2023. We use this article as a bit of a jumping off point to talk about rectal prolapse more in general. And again, one of our recurring themes and interests on the podcast, which is the introduction of new techniques and technologies. If you have any thoughts or concerns or questions or comments, we'd love to hear them at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at Search. Dr. Ginther, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cold Steel podcast. Uh, This is another Journal Club episode. We're really excited to highlight uh, your paper that was published in uh, CJS uh, earlier this year. So just for our listeners who may not know you as well as we do, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you practice, and maybe a little bit about what the impetus was uh, to to research this topic? Sure, yeah. So I I practice colorectal surgery and a bit of general surgery, acute care, uh, only as much as as I have to. And I'm in Saskatoon, uh, Saskatchewan, or outside of the country. So it's an academic center. We have a residency training program. And uh, until a couple of months ago, you know, there was there was a single site with colorectal uh, special their subspecialty care in Saskatoon. So we cover a population of you know approaching one point one point three million. So uh, very busy colorectal <clears throat> colorectal wise. It's you know essentially one hundred percent one hundred percent of the elective practices in that is in that domain. Uh, you know, I mean, I first came across the uh, the concept at uh, one of those video uh, video abstract at the ASCRS meeting in uh, 2015 or 2016, somewhere somewhere thereabouts. And I thought it was an interesting concept. You know, looking for innovative ways to to expand sort of the maybe the scope of what we do, or or at least uh, creative uh, uh, ways of approaching the same problems if there is going to be an advantage. And uh, so one thing that was pretty clear looking at the uh, looking at some of those early videos was that uh, technically speaking, it's a pretty straightforward approach to prolapse. And, and I, and, you know, I thought that maybe it may make it a bit more accessible to surgeons that otherwise might be a little bit uncomfortable. So that's sort of, uh, uh, started that, that interest. And then also the time saving. So again, uh, you know, we can tell that it's very efficient and, um, uh, certainly in, in, uh, our current resource situations. Not that that's that different now as compared to five years ago, but uh, but efficiency of operating time is really important. So those two things, uh, in my mind, it was uh, to increase efficiency and then also potentially to increase the uh, the array of providers of surgeons that might be comfortable treating treating rectal prolapse. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense, Nathan. Can, can you give us maybe for the uninitiated uh, learners and guys like me who who don't do this operation? Can you give us a, a broad sense of uh, how you frame potential repairs and, and how you look at those choices. Yeah, so, you, you know, we really have perineal approaches and abdominal approaches. And um, 
in general, if uh, if our patients are young and fit and physiologically able to withstand, uh, you know, uh, a general anesthetic and intra-abdominal surgery, then that that should be the first approach. So, you know, the results for a trans-abdominal approach are superior. And you know, by that I'm I'm talking about uh, primarily rectopexy. And you know, um, if you haven't seen one of those, that's mobilization of the rectum, and we actually free it up much like you would for for a resection, all the way down to the pelvic floor and uh, and then once it's freed up, you'll do other tacks or sutures to uh, to fixate some of the peritoneum adjacent to the rectum onto the presacral fascia. So that's sort of the mainstay of uh, abdominal approaches. You know, there's variations that can be combined with a resection of a, of a redundant sigmoid, and you know, in some practices that might be combined with some mesh to to increase adhesion. But the the um, but the mainstay of that is mobilization, and then pexy with suture or tacks, and uh, potentially mesh and uh, you know, it sort of introduces the concept of a ventral mesh rectopexy where we're, where we're not mobilizing behind the rectum, but we're actually just dissecting, you know, along the rectovaginal septum and tacking a mesh to that, and then using that as a point of fixation and, and fixating the mesh to the uh, presacral fascia. So, uh, you know, abdominal approaches tend to be more successful with lower rates of recurrence, and so that's prefer preferred if uh, physiologically a uh, patient can tolerate a, a GA. Most of those are done laparoscopically, at least at least in my practice, I've never done an, an open rectopexy. And we don't do a, have a robotic practice here, so that's always laparoscopic. And, um, you know, results are, are excellent. And and in fact, uh, this is typically a day procedure. So, I'm, you know, I'm the right patient, I'm not even admitting these patients overnight. So they're, they're home the same day. Um, but again, you know, when in the 80 to 90 to 100 plus year olds that we're seeing, that may not be very good. So... Uh, we would prefer a, usually a perineal approach for somebody with advanced age or medical comorbidities, and that can be done almost always with a spinal anesthetic, good results. And uh, uh, the best, uh, the most successful treatments are, are um, resectional procedures where we're actually resecting the prolapsing and redundant segment and making a new anastomosis. That's where the, the two sort of perineal approaches that we talk about in our paper, the conventional Altemeyer and the, and the stapled prolapse resection or the stapled Altemeyer, that's where we're can you just talk a little bit uh, more in detail about the two common perineal approaches, uh, including the stapled one, or sorry, excluding the stapled one, uh, which are the Altmeyer and the DeLorme? Can you t talk a little bit about those approaches, just to sort of frame the, our, our discussion? Sure, yeah. So, you know, I'll start with the DeLorme's procedure. And uh, the best way to conceptualize this is that uh, really it's a sleeve resection of the mucosa. And uh, and then you're doing some plication of the underlying muscularis propria. So um, essentially, you know, the operation uh, can be done in whatever position you're comfortable with. I do this all in prone position. It's just optimal positioning. You can see much better. Your assistant can be more useful. And uh, and then uh, I'll uh, put in some uh, anal effacement sutures to get good visualization or maybe a Lone Star retractor. And uh, then you want to actually prolapse the rectum out. And I guess a, a first question would be, how do you select that? Uh, so what's what's an appropriate prolapse to treat with the DeLorme's procedure? And, and so that's either it's mucosa only, and so the redundant mucosa is prolapsing, but the muscularis is not, or short segment. So we four centimeters uh, of prolapse, uh, a prolapse as the cutoff. If it's uh, longer than that, DeLorme's interestingly, uh, there is certainly some literature that it's, you know, it says it's pretty darn good, maybe maybe almost as good as an Altemeyer, even for longer segment prolapse, but but most of us would consider it only for a short segment or for um, mucosa-only prolapse. And so again, you want to prolapse it out to its maximal extent, 
and then usually inject some either uh, just saline or some dilute epinephrine into the submucosa and you're you know making a incision in the in the mucosa alone just proximal to the dentate line roughly a, roughly a centimeter or two centimeters proximal to the dentate line and then you access that submucosal plane and you strip the mucosa off leaving the muscularis intact and you you know you you, you bring that back as far as you, as you can or sort of to the apex of the prolapse segment and and once that's done, you use a placating suture to imbricate the muscularis propria. And I, I would put in four of those sutures at each quadrant, or a total of four, one in, one in each quadrant. And uh, when you tie them down, it bunches or reefs up that mucosa together, and then you can do a mucosal anastomosis. So, so it's just resecting the mucosa and then placating the underlying uh, muscularis. So that would be the Delorms. And uh, so the Altemeyer is actually a, a resectional or full thickness resectional procedure. And so you set it up in the same way. Uh, but instead of incising only the mucosa, you actually do a full thickness rectotomy, rectotomy through the muscularis uh, as well. And when you do that, you know, you see the mesorectum posteriorly and anteriorly sort of, you know, nothing connected to the tissue or, or the bare area. Then you have to dissect through the mesorectum and uh, ligate or ligature or you know whatever device you want to you want to use or, or method for control, and you want to get through all that um, perirectal tissue in the mesorectum onto the rectal wall itself, and then you and you just sort of pull it out and and free it up from whatever mesentery there is, and you do that uh, essentially as far as you can go, and. Um, you want to get to a point where you've removed all of the redundancy, and you know sometimes that's just the length of the prolapse, which you can see, and sometimes you actually you know get the sigmoid colon out, and suddenly you've got a foot or two feet, or you know uh, a remark sometimes a remarkable length. And uh, then you resect that, and you do an end-to-end -end anastomosis. And you know most of us would do a hand-sewn anastomosis there. Uh, you know you can you can do it with staplers as well, but typically it'd be an end-to-end hand-sewn anastomosis. And then once that's done, you drop everything back inside, and um, and uh, and, that, and that's it. So typically, you know, we're looking at about sixty minutes or so of operating time for that, maybe a little longer. And uh, our results are, you know, really, really very good. So those patients recover quickly, typically home in in two or three days, and uh, with a really low risk of major complications. Uh, it's so well described. I, I I wish I had that perfect description in in my exams. <laughs> Back in the day, um, you know, Nathan, you led a team and, and wrote a really, really nice paper in the, in the CJS, as, as Amir mentioned. Can you start to walk us through that paper, maybe talking briefly about what the genesis uh, of it was, why you decided to look at this, and then um, what, you, what you found in general and, and where it's taken you? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, it's a pretty simple paper. And... Um... Uh, it's uh, it's a retrospective, you know, cohort study, really. And uh, like I, I mentioned at, at the start, you know, we wanted to explore some of the efficiency savings, and then also, you know, potentially potentially ways to make this procedure accessible to to general surgeons that might not be comfortable doing some of the other uh, the other procedures. Um, so essentially, we just had two groups, and we used uh, we started to do the stapled approach. One of my colleagues and I, and you know, when you, when you start doing new things, it's maybe a whole other topic about how you introduce new procedures or new technology. But uh, but I certainly feel a lot better doing that in combination with a colleague. You know, so we sort of two set two sets of eyes on a problem, and uh, hopefully hopefully being able to avoid <laughs> avoid complications. And so we started. Uh, my colleague uh, Dalip Gill and I started doing this at roughly the same time. And so prior to that, we were doing of um, 
the conventional Altmeyer procedure, and then we switched to the stapled Altmeyer procedure fairly early, early on. And you know, we had a bit of a collaborative relationship with the uh, colorectal group in uh, in Vancouver as well, uh, who around the same time actually started to make some of the, some of the same changes, and so we ended up combining uh, combining data after the fact. Um, so essentially, we had two cohorts, and one was the historical controls, which were just consecutive patients. We went through our records and identified those patients that had Altmeyer's and included them, and then we looked at sort of the, the newer cohort with the stapled approach. Um, and in general, you know, once we made the switch, we were almost always doing this stapled approach. Now there were a few a few uh, exclusions to that, and maybe maybe we'll talk about the. Some of, the, some of the technical aspects a little a little bit later, but we didn't feel it was suitable necessarily for for every patient. So we, we were still selective and wasn't a hundred percent change in, in technique. But uh, anyway, you know, long and short of it is, um, over a period of about about two years, there we accrued a total of forty four patients, and so uh, twenty five in the stapled uh, group and nineteen in in the conventional group. Again, that's between the two sites. And uh, so we went just went back afterwards and looked at our operative. Um, uh, parameters and outcomes, surgical outcomes, and you know what we found is that there was uh, a lot of a lot of time saving. So the total time in the operating room was significantly reduced, and you know um, the operative time went from uh, 67 minutes before to about an average of 30 minutes uh, afterwards. So you know 50% reduction in, in operative time, um, and then you know the perioperative anesthetic considerations didn't really change uh, didn't really change very much. Um, and so that's sort of the nuts and bolts was this uh, cohort series. And uh, um, one of the other parameters we were interested in was cost. And I know we didn't really talk about that earlier, but um, the one of the criticisms, I suppose, is that if we're adding a bunch of uh, uh, staplers to the uh, to the procedure, that uh, there may be increased cost to it. And, and that certainly is true. But that cost of staplers is more than offset by the cost savings of uh, you know less time in the operating room. So, um, I mean, did you want to talk about the actual technical performance of the procedure? Or do you want to discuss that a little later? Um, I just wanted to, you to just walk us through some of these tables, and then, uh, and then I do want to get to the uh, how I do it part of the, the this this talk. So, um, you know, in your table one, you have you compare the this the standard Altmeyer to your um, staple technique. It did seem like. Uh, the patients that were going for the staple technique were uh, a bit older, uh, perhaps a little leaner, maybe a little bit frailer. Um, can you comment a little bit about that? Was that is that something that was uh, you were deliberately thinking when kind of starting this, or did it just sort of, sort of happen that way? Yeah, I mean, there there probably is a bit of a selection bias in that you know when you're looking at uh, what's going to be the quickest way to get this patient off the operating table. Um, then we would be more likely to choose a stapled approach. And uh, so I, I guess by no surprise, that's typically the frailer, thinner, you know, you know, patient. And so I think what we're seeing there in terms of the uh, differences in the groups in terms of age and sort of markers of frailty is that we were probably choosing a stapled approach in the more frail patients specifically to minimize time in operating room for them. And, and remind me, uh, were these patients all under general anesthetic, or, or do you ever do these under spinal or deep sedation? Yeah, um, probably the majority. I mean, uh, to be honest, like I actually I, I don't know the uh, Vancouver data here, but 
in Saskatoon, the majority are under spinal anesthetic. So unless there was a contraindication or a significant patient preference uh, for GA, um, you know, I, I know some patients had aortic stenosis, which uh, makes the anesthesia a little bit nervous about spinals. Um, we would typically use a spinal, actually. Yeah, I think that that was typical, at least in my experience in Vancouver, uh, where we used to a lot of these operations at our ambulatory site where uh, you know these patients would all essentially get a low-dose spinal or a caudal block. Um, so that is a huge, obviously, advantage over um, our uh, patients that need the general anesthetic uh, for some of the other approaches that we talked about, like an abdominal approach. Um, you can definitely see that there's a big difference in the operative time there in, the, in your table too, uh, almost basically in half. Um, and I think anybody who's who's tried to do an Altmeyer or Denson Altmeyer knows that it, it does take some time and you do have to be in the right plane. It does require some sense of like the anatomy. So um, yeah, it definitely seems to be a quicker and, and smoother operation from that point of view. That not a huge difference in the length of the pull-ups. It doesn't look like. Um, and then talk to us a little bit about uh, uh, the recurrent, like this table three, which I think is really the, the money <clears throat> A table in this uh, study, um, really not not any significant uh, change in complications, recurrence, or, or really anything else. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Have you noticed any major differences in terms of uh, recurrences or any other issues between the two groups? Hmm. Yeah, so I think the key takeaway there is that our data replicates what was you know previously uh, previously found, and that there is no difference in any major measurable outcome. So, uh, you know, complication rates remain quite low and, and uh, the most frequent complication is recurrence, which is which is what we expect given the patient. And, uh, you know, our, our recurrence rates here, maybe a little on the high side of, of literature, but uh, uh, but nothing that anybody who treats a lot of rectal prolapse would be, would be surprised by. And sort of more perioperative outcomes or complications, the, the most common is urinary retention, which no, I mean it's it's data, but I personally wouldn't consider that a meaningful a meaningful uh, complication. And uh, differences, you know, in terms of bleeding that required intervention, it's actually really really low. And um, our anastomotic leak rate was zero in the staple group, um, and one in you know in the conventional group, which is sort of on on par with uh, on par with the literature. But the key takeaways are that you know the things that we're interested in in terms of major outcomes, complications, pelvic abscess, sepsis, death, you know, bleeding requiring intervention, there is no difference. I think this is a great time to actually start talking about um, your approach to this uh, operation from a technical point of view. So let me just pull up a video. It's not uh, I don't, uh, your video, and I couldn't actually find the video from Dr. Kerbuda, but I think this is a pretty representative kind of video that I found on YouTube. Um, maybe I'll let you uh, do some commentary on it. <laughs> sure, on the fly here. I haven't I haven't seen this video before. Yeah, <laughs> but so uh, uh, let let me just ask you: Do you so do you uh, do this in lithotomy? I know you mentioned uh, I, that you do your. I do actually in prone. Yeah, yeah. I do even even this even even staple. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Certainly. Yeah. So you know, um, watching the video here, we're seeing them get set up to uh, you know to bring the prolapse out to its maximal extent. Um, 
one thing I'd say here is that I, I like to do something to actually efface the anus and sort of flatten the perineum a little bit more so you can get a better view of that dentate line. And, you know, it's one of our sort of one of our critical uh, landmarks is the dentate line. And we want the resection to go to about one to two centimeters proximal to the dentate. And, you know, in this video, I'm sure if you're there, you can see it. But here, you, you know, you certainly can. So I like to place either a Lone Star retractor or effacement speeches or something. Uh, but basically, you, you know, you want to get that prolapse out to its maximal extent and then get set up to do the first staple firing. And the first staplers that we're using are, are linear staplers, as you can see, you know, here. And those get fired at the 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock positions to sort of separate the uh, the prolapse into an anterior half and a posterior half. And, and just to back up for a second, kind of glossed over it a little bit in, in terms of the workup of these patients. Uh as an outpatient, but I think one of the things that you mentioned uh, in the paper is that you were pretty careful to exclude someone with an entrocele. Can you talk a little bit to us about that? What What do you mean by that? Why is that so important uh, when you're thinking about this operation? Right, yeah. So well, what we're talking about is, you know, with the low cul-de-sac and uh, low anterior reflection, uh, abdominal contents can come down into the pelvis and could actually conceivably be prolapsed out below the level of the pelvic floor and contained within or between the layers of, of the rectum. And, and if that happens, and I mean, small bowel would be the most likely organ, um, you know, and conceivably bladder could, you know, uh, if the female patient had a hysterectomy, bladder potentially, but, you know, small bowel might actually reach down there. And if you're not aware of that and, you know, you do the staple, the resection, you won't identify it and you could incorporate small bowel into your anastomosis, which could cause any number of complications, you know, perforation, sepsis, um, or enterorectal or enteroanal fistula, which uh, would be a very, very significant complication if that happened. So, yeah, that's one of the things that we're most worried about. And, you know, um, early the early literature, uh, typically the authors would describe evaluation with MR depthography or something similar to that to exclude uh, enterocele. Um, you know, I don't actually think that's necessary. I think that you you can, with a good clinical examination, exclude that. And maybe part of it has to do actually with positioning. And so, you know, when, when I do this, like I said, in, in prone, there's always a little bit of um, uh, Trendelenburg positioning too. And I think that actually serves to get any abdominal contents out of the pelvis. So just gravity is going to pull it up to the upper abdomen. And so if, even if there were to be an enterocele in, you know, in uh, upright positioning, when there are patients on the operating table, that's less likely. And then, uh, and then I would do at the start of the case, uh, when I'm deciding still which technique I'm going to do, uh, it's a careful bi-digital examination. And again, most of our patients are female. So it's a simultaneous rectal and vaginal examine, examination trying to I just to palpate to see what's the, the thickness of that of that space in the cul-de-sac and if you get the sense that there's any additional tissue. And so yeah, if I'm confident in that, then you know, then we'll proceed with the staple. But there's there's situations where I just can't feel, you know, adequately and I'm and I'm not confident enough to exclude something else. And then I won't do the stapled approach. I'll do the conventional approach because you can directly visualize it if there's small bowel in there, you know, you can you can see that and you can exclude it from the anastomosis. Sort of on a related line, if, you, if someone has concomitant pelvic organ prolapse, um, you know, without, they're having, um, you know, uterine prolapse or something like that through the vagina, is that someone that you would uh, consider uh, uh, another approach? Does that change your approach? Or is, you know, if the rectal prolapse is really what's causing the most problems, that's what you're going to do? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a bit of a complicated question. So you'd have to know a lot more about that patient. And um, so if this is a really frail elderly patient and the primary symptoms are from the rectal prolapse, then I'm going to focus on treating that, you know. Um, I'm not going not gonna to be worried about a combined approach. Now, in younger patients or where there is significant symptoms from both, we actually do do sometimes do combined uh, uh, combined procedures as well you know with uh, with a gynecologist where we'll do you know a copopexy or you know sacral copopexy uh, in combination with uh, with rectopexy but those will be done uh, you know as a transabdominal approach not as a, a, I don't I've never done a, a simultaneous perineal approach for one of for you know for combined pelvic organ prolapse you know uh, I probably would still if there's no other reason uh, to not do a stapled approach, provided the you know the uh, other genital or or uh, reproductive organ prolapse is not affecting the posterior wall of the vagina, I wouldn't really change things very much. I think you could still do the same uh, the same approach. W what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I I just raise it just because I think it is important to kind of think about the whole picture when seeing someone in uh, in clinic. Like that part of it is important. As the majority of these patients are female. And so I think getting a sense of like, is there total pelvic organ kind of prolapse is, uh, is important because I think it would change your approach potentially if that was a big component of this, uh, as well. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that too. Um, okay. So maybe we'll, we'll just, uh, go back to the video here. So you got this linear stapler. Now, do you just out of curiosity, do you use a certain, staple height do you do you care if it's green or blue yeah you typically use the 100 millimeter green stapler just because you know you're firing through two layers of bowel here and the rectum is thicker than you know the small bowel or, or the colon in general so it's fairly thick tissue and you know there's also often some mesentery in there so i typically use the the green uh, thicker firing loads now you know, with availability being what it has been lately, we often don't have what we want. So I, I have done it with the blue loads as well, and it doesn't seem to make much difference. Uh, maybe the reason for that is that everything you're stapling here, you know, as these uh, as they're doing right now in the in the video, all that staple line is being completely excised. So maybe it's a bit thick, and you wouldn't trust it for an actual anastomosis. That part is being resected; it's not forming the ultimate anastomosis. Like you can really, it doesn't. It probably doesn't matter. I must say, I usually, uh, the way I've seen this, the way I would do this, I would do this one at a time. I feel like they would get in the way of each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not to mention you're using two separate firings, which is probably, or two separate staplers. Staplers, Cost, cost yeah. perspective is unnecessary, yeah. So so what we see here is, you know, they've, uh, they've fired those two staplers and that prolapse is now sort of split in half and you've got an anterior leaf and a posterior leaf. And um, sort of the apex of that staple line should be up at the, you know, that one to two centimeters away from the dentate. And then there's a, a, a the, the next firing is transversely. And this is actually performing the resection and doing the anastomosis simultaneously. Now, you know, in this video, they're using the same linear stapler, which, uh, you know, I've certainly have seen done in it. I've, I've, I've never done that myself. Uh, we, we use a, a curved, a, a curved stapler just tends to, it has a, has a nicer nicer appearance to the you know, end up with a, a circular anastomosis at the end, and um, you know we use the contour. I don't have any brand loyalty here, but but it's a nice stapler. You know, it's really robust, and uh, 
again, because you're stapling through two layers of bowel and mesentery, you know, you really got to trust that those staples are robust and strong, they're strong enough to do what you're asking. And so, you know, for that reason, I, I, I like the contour, but I don't have any, I guess, no specific reason to, to disagree with the use of a linear stapler for this firing. Some of the, the boys and girls at, in Vancouver would certainly kind of get a feel of the, the rectum itself and kind of make a qualitative assessment about the thickness of the rectum. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would say, mm, I think it's too thick. Is that something that you ever run into or not? Yeah, yet? yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, we would make that, th that assessment before this stage in the video, you know. At this point, you're pretty much committed, I think, committed to that technique. Uh, but the answer is yes. So when it's prolapsed out, and you know that's kind of I, I didn't mention it, but I was mentioning when I was describing excluding or trying to exclude enterocele, part of that assessment too is you know just the thickness of the tissue. And, and yeah, there's been certainly been a handful of times, and I I, I just think it's too thick, and I and I don't trust the papers to do it. And you know that's you know the conventional approach. So I, I think it's you know I, I mentioned perhaps this being accessible to you know to non subspecialist uh, surgeons, but I guess one argument against that is if uh, if you have to make a change in plans and you don't know how to do an alternative technique, it's a pretty un pretty uncomfortable position to be in. So, and, and you mentioned that you kind of efface the anus um, so you can make sure your stapler staples are actually going uh, above the dentate line, or yeah, like not down to the dentate line. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, assessment? Where do you? actually want these the staple line to be relative to the dentate line and why is that important yeah so you want it to be at least one to two centimeters proximal to the dentate line and you know i mean that's just in in a conventional altimeter that's where we that's the margin that we select and the reasons for that are, are twofold and you know with, with staplers uh, that are going to be there probably you know for the rest of the patient's life if you have those staples at the dentate line well i mean for one you're excising part of the part of the internal sphincter and, uh, uh, you know, uh, worsening sphincter function would probably result because you've resected part of it. But the other big concern would be pain. And so staples that cross the dentate line uh, where there's visceral or somatic pain um, could, could subject that patient to potentially permanent long-term long -term pain from, the, from, uh, from that. And then, uh, you know, in, in my mind, too, the, the risk of recurrence is moderate with any of these prolapse procedures. And so I'm always thinking, well, what about the next time? And, and if I have to do this again, what am I going to do? You know, if I'm too close to the dentate line, then I won't have anywhere to announce most in the, in the next, the next go-round. And so I want to save enough landing zone if I have to do another resection in the future that I've still got something to announce most. And do you do any other sutures or... Um... Anything yeah. like that to oversew uh, any of the staple lines? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, so kind of when I, uh, you know, when we do that first linear staple line, and I'll right at the apex of that, I'll I'll use usually like an O or a two O vicral, and uh, I'll I'll uh, just uh, pick up a big bite of that of the apex of the staple line and use that as an as an anchor, and you know, largely because I don't want this to retract spontaneously and, and lose control of it. But uh, but then I also use that and I'll overrun the entire. Uh, contour staple line so doing a full thickness uh, over overrun down that and you know I mean maybe I'm just maybe I'm just paranoid but but I like adding some suture to that for hemostasis and um, uh, just to just to get more tissue into the anastomosis and I find sometimes the corners of the staple line bleed like right 
not not so much the contour green one, but right in the corner of the contour and the the linear stapler. Sometimes those corners tend to bleed, maybe because there's a lot of tissue that you kind of bunched mm -hmm. up and resected there. And so sometimes I find that um, certainly the crew in, in Vancouver would often put a suture in those yeah. corners if it was if it was bleeding. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And uh, I mean, the, that staple line, you get these sort of intersecting staple lines, and sometimes it's a little bit ragged, you know, you can get kind of a zigzag there. And, and I just don't like that. And so I over over sew that. But yeah, like I said, I actually do run over on the entire the entire thing for for uh, a sleep at night stitch, if you will. I got it. And um, when you're checking this at the end, are you uh, are you? Is there anything that you're kind of like going through in your mind just to make sure that it looks a certain way? Is there anything that that's made you stop and change your approach entirely, like convert to a, a more standard Altmaier, or never really run into a problem or a scenario like that? Yeah, I actually I actually haven't run into anything like that, and um, you know, at this point, you pretty much committed <laughs> committed to this approach. And then if there's if there's technical issues, you know, you're looking at just doing direct repair of whatever that area of concern is, you know, uh, it'd be pretty tough now to re-prolapse everything and convert it entirely to a conventional approach. Um, so mostly what I'm looking at is, is hemostasis, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put a scope in and we'll visualize it to make sure there's no big gaps in the anastomosis, but that part you've seen before you kind of reduce it back into the pelvis, but I still will put a, you know, an anoscope in and have a good look at it and then make sure it's hemostatic. In some of the worst complications I've seen from from Altemeyer's have been hemorrhage related. So uh, I think it's it's good to be paranoid about that and, and have a look. And you know, partly because when you've you've had it on tension, you've had the prolapse outside of the body. You know, maybe even putting some pressure on blood vessels. And now that it's into anatomic position, they're they're free to uh, to start bleeding. So it's a good idea to look. I think once it's actually reduced pelvis. Yeah, that's very wise words. It's, uh, it's not fun to have to deal with. A whole bunch of bleeding in your face so no fun at all in this position um what any anything that you do from like a dressing perspective post-operative care are you keeping these patients in the hospital or is this a day procedure for you how do you kind of manage that perioperative man, um, care yeah i mean i'll tell you what i do and everybody everybody has a slightly different approach to this uh but no these patients are, are admitted and largely because they're typically typically frail and uh, so average length of stay is two days, sometimes three. And, and often it's not for physiological reasons that they're staying at more social reasons. But uh, so I, I leave the catheter in for the first night and then take that out day one, uh, make sure your night function is adequate. Uh, I feed the patients right away and no, no, no prophylactic antibiotics or, or anything like that after they've left the operating room. And so it's a regular diet. Uh, it's catheter out day one. Uh, you know, when they're eating and drinking well and have had a, a normal bowel movement, then they go home. And uh, that's, yeah, typically the second or maybe third post-operative day. Uh, stool softeners or anything like that, milk and magnesium? Yeah, I, I, I don't actually. I know one, one of my colleagues does routinely put everybody on on PEG or, you know, milk and magnesium or something. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I haven't found any sort of delayed uh, return of bowel function without without routine use of uh, stimulants or laxatives. So I think there's no, between myself and my colleague who, who vary in that practice, uh, there's really no difference in time in hospital. Yeah, it probably tells you that probably a lot of our things that we do are probably just dog blend and we don't really, probably don't need them. <laughs> um, 
So, uh, you know, like I think it, it's very clear that these prolapse repairs all have a recurrence rate, whether you do them abdominal, perineal. And I know in the paper you mentioned that over the study period, uh, there weren't any recurrences that were noted. If someone was going to have a recurrence, and I, I, I must say I did actually have someone uh, in Vancouver when I was there doing my fellowship who did have a recurrence after one of these stapled repairs uh, that was significant enough that needed another operation. How would you approach dealing with a recurrence of their prolapse after having a stapled repair like this? Mm, yeah, yeah, a good question. And so, you know, I get the, the the critical question is, can you repeat the same approach or have you burned a bridge, you know? Um, and uh, I've only ever done a conventional Altemeyer as a, as a salvage operation. And uh, largely it's just because my concern about too many staples and, uh, um, you know, perhaps interference of the existing staples when you, if you were to, you know, redo a stapled approach. And uh, so in those cases, and yes, it, it has happened to me, uh, I, I would do a conventional Altemeyer. Why do you think this hasn't uh, caught on more? Uh, it's certainly like a, a pretty easy thing to learn, I would say. Like it's much easier to learn how to do this than, than to do an Altemeyer. Certainly a Delorum. I find, I don't know about you, but I find Delorum's incredibly kind of finicky to get, you know, just perfect with that mucosal resection, at least in my hands. Um, so why, why do you think this hasn't caught on more or, and, and do you think that it's something that is going to be more popular as time goes on? Yeah, I mean, it's new for one, right? And, uh, so people are, I think we're always afraid to integrate new things, partly because of some of the, the live, perhaps some of the liability issues or the criticism issues, you're doing something new. If it's different than what your, you know, what your colleagues are doing or what common practice is, you're, you're potentially going to be more criticized for that. So part of it may be just fear of doing, of deviating from, uh, from the practice standard. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess I would say that in general, uh, less comfort with subspecialty procedures, at least in newer surgical general surgery trainees. And so, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, d I don't have a lot of residents now that I think you're going to be comfortable treating rectal prolapse as a general surgeon. And so, you know, why, why why are they gonna why do they want to dabble you know in rectal prolapse so i guess part of this is concentration in the hands of of subspecialists rather than generalists and yeah the other aspect i mean maybe a third element too is just i mean there's not a lot of discussion about this you know like unless you go to these meetings and you watch these videos or you really seek this out how are you gonna how are you gonna know about things, right and so maybe that's you know where venues like this uh, might uh, uh you know dissemination of information might have have a role but that's, I think that's how, how I would describe it. And you, you mentioned that um, uh, when you were introducing this approach that you did it together with uh, Dilip in, in conjunction and kind of, I'm sure, doubled up on your cases uh, when you're kind of getting over your initial experience. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me a little bit about how your group approaches innovation and uh, when you when you think and you see a new procedure, how do you actually go about integrating it into your practice? Because you know we all see these videos, um, especially now. Like it's 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 a it's an amazing time to be a surgeon because you can literally like one of my favorite groups, favorite things to do, honestly. Uh, like it's like my enjoyment at nighttime is to go on Sages, the Sages Facebook Colorectal Group, and like watch people's videos that they post and uh, the crazy, you know, like 
the Hartman's reversal and a patient's had a ruin Y gastric bypass. Like, you know, how, how do you approach that? Um, so, I, you know, I guess what I'm saying is like in, a, in an era where you can watch videos and see things and go to meetings and like people are showing you, oh, yeah, I did the, the next greatest and latest thing. How do you figure out, well, you know, this is a technique that I think actually is going to have some promise. Um, and then more importantly, how do you go about integrating that into your into your practice in a safe way? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, from just sort of vague philosophical grounds here, you know, you know, recognition of your own limitations, right? And not, not being, perhaps uh, being humble, right? Uh, so, so not uh, just assuming because you've seen something that you can do it or that you, or that you necessarily should do it, you know? And so I think just a, an honest look at yourself and your practice and is this something that is actually going to add to my patients or not? And, um, and uh, and then, you know, realizing what's in scope of practice and what isn't. And I think we should all actually, you know, be emboldened to to add to our skill set for those things that are within scope of practice, right? And it's not a huge leap. You know, we're not talking about, I mean, I'm a pelvic surgeon. Adding new pelvic procedures is not a big leap, right? Even if it's things I wasn't trained on, that's very different than me trying to do, you know, whatever, a thyroidectomy or, or something, hepatectomy uh, or something like that, right? So I can be a lot more confident adding things that are within the scope of my everyday practice. And that's going to vary from, you know, surgeon to surgeon. Um, so I think part of that is that in terms of how you integrate those things, for me, it's just making sure that there actually is some good quality, durable data, right? That it's not just, uh, you know, it's just not the flavor of the month. Uh, that'd be a part of it. And uh, and the second is, uh, you know, I kind of alluded to it, but in, but in our practice, there's really there's sort of three things that we've that we've added in terms of technical uh, technical skill sets, and that's TATME and lateral pelvic lymph node dissections, and then expanding role for transanal endoscopic microsurgery. And um, so sort of myself and my colleagues, the way we've approached that is uh, doing everything as a team approach, right? And so case review, sort of a consensus and um, within the practice, we have, you know, daily discussions about patients and cases and making sure there is agreement and consensus on whether whatever this thing, be it, you know, lateral, lateral lymph node dissection is appropriate. And then making sure we do adequate sort of self self study and reflection on those, uh, on whatever that skill set is. And as you pointed out, there's, I mean, there's just a ton of a ton of resources, right? You can you can learn a lot, uh, but when we're implementing that, is actually doing it all in team surgery, right? And uh, so sometimes that means involving you know mentors or, or proctors, and you know like we've we've had um, done cases with uh, urologists who, for example, do a lot of a lot of pelvic lymph node dissections, which wasn't something that we were doing. So you know, spend some time with the urologist, uh, watching what they do and learning what they do, and then and then um, integrating that over. So. And I think that that's how I how I how I would uh, approach at least you know what we've done in here at Saskatoon. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great discussion. I think a lot of people are really going to benefit from it. So, so thank you again. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for your time tonight. You've been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.